And I, I think in some ways, like this entire infertility journey for me was this, was this acceptance that I had ultimately zero control over the outcome, even though everything was happening inside of me, you know. Welcome to Model Minority Moms, where we talk about the complicated meaning of success in career, family, and life. I'm Kate Wong, Jeanette Park, and Susan Liu, Harvard classmates and Asian American working moms to littles who get real about the pressures of fitting in while standing out. Welcome to uh, Model Minority Moms podcast. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the mysterious and magical world of fertility. And today we are joined by a very special, special, super duper special guest named Sarah Lafleur. She is the founder and CEO of MM Lafleur, which she founded in 2013 with a mission to help women take the work out of dressing for work. She's also my friend. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you. Uh, thank you. What an, what an illustrious introduction. Thank you very much. And Sarah, as it happens, I'm wearing an M.M. LaFleur oh belt. Oh my gosh, are you kidding? I know. Oh my they gosh. made me don it. They're like, you have M.M. LaFleur clothing. You have to wear something. Oh my gosh. Sarah, I, I can see it. You're, I didn't yeah. know you were a customer. Thank you. Recent, recent. <laughs> Actually, and then one of our friends who's also uh, 07 Harvard, she's like your biggest fan. I think you introduced Casey to Sarah, right? Casey yeah. loves. She's like an evangelist. Oh my gosh, that's you guys. So that's really that's so wonderful. Thank you. And then the three of you know, like when did you connect and and how? We all were friends, like maybe not super close, but we were we all knew each other. When she says friends, that means in section. I was very intimidated by all of them and felt like dumb. That's what I mean. So. This is what she means by friend. They were smart, very smart. Sarah, to answer your question, I was living in Seattle. Then Kate moved here from Beijing. Yeah. And then Jeanette moved here from Boston. And we were like, we all knew we were all in town. And then once the baby started popping up, we were like, please help me. I'm texting you in the middle of the night and I hate my life or I'm so confused or do you have extra things? And then we became really tight. Oh, that's incredible. And so, and so how old are all your babies? I have a three-year-old and a 10-month-old. Yeah. Yeah. Mine so is, I feel like, yeah. yeah. Mine is, is, gosh, she's 17 months. So just a month older than Art, right, Susan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Art's 15 months. Yay. And then I'm- we're, we're, 10 month, no, 11 month old and uh, two who are almost 10 months. Okay. Yeah. So your kids are right around my younger one. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, but you have three that are almost like, it's like, it could be the same leap or not the same leap, but times three. Yeah. I know, but I, you know, it's funny because we, we were, we just had some friends over for the weekend and they have one and he's 18 months. So probably, you know, around the two of your baby's age. And I was like, one is, I think maybe just as hard as three. I really had that realization this weekend. Cause I, at one point I was texting my girlfriends. I was like, is it bad for me to like be on my iPhone texting you while my babies play? And they're like, no, not at all. 
And I think I find it easy to have the three of them kind of like be on their own and interact together and hang out together. Whereas when I was talking to my girlfriend who has that one baby, she was like, yeah, I feel guilty when I'm not entertaining him. And whereas like, I feel like I shed that guilt pretty quickly <laughs> because I was like, you have each other. So I'm not going to say like three is a walk in the park, but I, I think a lot of the, the challenges that you have are different from the, from when you only have one. Yeah. And I think it, it, I mean, they say it gets even more like that as they get older, that the benefit of them being able to play with each other is even more. Okay. Well, um, let's, let's just get to it. You, Sarah, just said three kids is the same as one, which that doesn't seem right. But you also have three kids, triplets, in the span of six weeks, right? Seven weeks. You have yeah. three kids. Yeah, that's right. And, and this all started because you have a unicorn uterus. That's right. I have a unicorn uterus or a I think the, the medical term is unicornuate uterus, but right. But I'll uh, just say what unicorn. So I've taken to saying unicorn uterus. Right. But unlike in tech where you want to be a unicorn in this situation with your fertility journey, you did not want to be a unicorn. Like tell us all about your unicorn uterus. Well, I didn't know I had one, I guess is where I should start. I think like most people, you don't really, you know, know the shape of most of your internal organs growing up. And the, the reason I stumbled upon it is because I, like many over-preparers, decided to prepare for my fertility journey before we even like started trying to have babies. So I went to see my friend's fertility specialist because she, she had suffered from PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which makes it often I think complicated for a lot of people to get pregnant. So on her recommendation, I went to see this fertility specialist and he just kind of laughed in my face, you know, and he was like, you and your husband haven't even started trying and why are you here? Like, you know, go home and go have sex basically. But he said, if you really want to know where the baseline is, we can run some blood tests, do some preliminary things. And it's so funny because now talking to some other fertility specialists, they said they would have never probably made me do this. It's called a HSG, which is where they pump air and then die into your, your vulva and then try to see the shape of your uterus. That's really only something I think doctors generally recommend if you have trouble getting pregnant, but we just kind of went straight there along with a bunch of other blood tests and everything basically came back normal, except for that, which is where they discovered that I only had one fallopian tube. And, you know, I think people have seen generally pictures of uteruses, but like mine just looks kind of like a banana versus, yeah, exactly. As opposed to two bananas. Or <laughs> So that was like really the start of the journey. And, you know, I think it was, it was scary because I think if you, if you just Google unicorn uterus, probably the, the top five things to come back are, you know, chances of miscarriage or fertility success with unicorn uteruses. You know, it's, it's, it looks pretty bleak. 
when if you just do a, a, a plain Google search, and I think the truth is like there's just isn't enough knowledge out there. It's a pretty rare thing. Like I think they they say 0.2% of women have it, but the truth is I think most women don't actually know the shape of their uterus unless they go through some process by which they have to figure out the shape of their uterus. And anyway, so I just found myself in this like pretty rare spot where, you know, most doctors don't really have a lot of experience dealing with unicorn uteruses. So even I think when I was even trying to gather, you know, information about it, that, that was really hard. And, and the truth is like, then I, I did continue to have fertility challenges, which ultimately may or may not be related to having a unicorn uterus. Like I still don't know. And I probably will never know. But yeah, I think, you know, to make a very, very long story short, we ended up going down the path of surrogacy after having, I guess, ultimately two failed rounds of IVF. I did three rounds of egg retrievals and then two rounds of IVF didn't work. And we did, you know, a lot of kind of different treatments in between, including one where they, they suspected I had endometriosis. And so they shut down my reproductive system. It was like going through menopause and that also didn't help with the problem. So anyway, we went down the path of, of surrogacy and we met someone through an agency, this incredible woman who ended up, you know, agreeing to be our gestational carrier and gestational carrier for those of us like who haven't heard the term before. I certainly hadn't just means like, you know, the embryo itself is, you know, mine and my husband's, you know, she is essentially, we, we take the embryo and we implant it in her uterus and she, you know, grows the baby inside of her. And anyway, her name is Trisha. She's the most incredible person. I think that I've, I've met, she, she and I have become very close. She's a medical technician living out in Minnesota and she has twin girls of her own. I think she, she's in her late twenties. And I think she, you know, she, she saw this very much as the gift that she could give back into the world. And she found, you know, pregnancy to be easy. And actually, you know, the funny thing is when we tried first with her, that failed. Uh, And so that was you know, I think in some ways I somehow expected it, you know, when you go down, I think a long path of infertility, you, you start to really I think, temper your expectations to the point where, you know, of course, like when it doesn't work out, it's disappointing, but it's not kind of soul crushing in the way maybe the first couple of times are, but she was totally distraught. You know, she was so, so sad that it didn't work out. And I think I, I wrote about this a bit in, in this Marie Claire article that I, I wrote, but I think, you know, it, it really just makes you realize surrogacy is this incredible gift, partly because of the physical journey, like your surrogate agrees to take on for you. But I think also very much the emotional journey, because all like they really want to do is, is give you a hand and help you out. And anyway, so we, we went on this really Wait, 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 wait. I want, yeah. I want to reference this amazing Marie Claire article where you tell everything about your <laughs> journey. But, but you had this amazing, like, she had her stomach opened for us mm. because she had to get a C-section. Like what she was willing to do for you. Totally. And I, 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 I don't, I, you, I, who, who else would you cut your stomach open for? Like, 
if your uncle wants you know or like how about your neighbor like your your mentor like you it's your her stomach was cut open it's a huge deal and I got a c-section I you know I again, it's like a unnecessarily complicated and long story, but I went in for an induction and then ultimately had an emergency C-section. And I, my scar is still thick and still healing. And I still see a physical therapist for it. And, and I think about Trisha every single time, because I'm like, I, I like, it's one thing for me to have a C-section to deliver my own baby. It's another thing to ask someone to have a C-section scar to deliver your babies. And even that was very touch and go because she had delivered her twins vaginally. And so that was very much her wish with my, with my, our twins too. But, you know, Thea, who's twin A, was, was uh, feet down. So, you know, that's just not a risk they were willing to take. And yeah, I think about it every day. I, it's, you know, I was just, I was just talking about it with my girlfriends. Cause they're like, Oh, well, no one can see this, you know, your C-section scar. It's not a big deal. You know, like, and it's true. It's like technically under your bikini line, but like it's there, you know, it's very much there. And I think even the recovery from a C-section, it was no joke. Like I just, I couldn't walk for a good week afterwards. And so the fact that she took this on, I, I mean, there's like no amount of thinking that can really express, you know, what it is that she means to me and my family. So, yeah, story. I have so many questions, but I know I've been asking all the questions. Ask away. <laughs> well, okay, wait, 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 let's just talk about the scars. Mm. Talk about scars and your C-section scar. You're you're talking about your scar. I I I this morning was admiring my stretch marks. And I've been really trying to be like, instead of like, ew, or it's more like, these are the tracks of my son. These are wars, war battle wounds, and I am a warrior. Like, seriously, I've been reading every article I can to like change my psychology around it. And I get that. And I love my son. And he's so great. I I would never not want him here, but I can't. I'm not, it's very hard for me to love the stretch marks right now. It's very hard. I really feel you. And I, 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 I am, I I really like what you said about how do you change your psychology around it? Because I think so much of the messaging that we've gotten, first of all, we just don't tend to see women with stretch marks, period. Right. Because those women often, you know, they're not posing nude. Uh, They're not your Victoria's Secret runway models. And I think even if you went to the pool, you know, I feel comfortable wearing a one piece now. I'm not ready to like bring out my bikini yet. And I don't know if I ever will be. And I, I just wonder like why there's, you're right. It's like a, it's completely psychological. Why is there so much shame around it? And like, what is it that you could do? I think, you know, to like change change your wiring, change my wiring so that I don't continue to think of it as like something that really needs to be hidden, which is, which is really the way I'm operating right now. Um, I, I wonder, I wonder if it would be like another wave of feminism if like women wore bikinis, even if they weren't thin and if they have stretch marks or scars or whatever, and just openly show scars 
don't try to get things removed, whatever. And it's just like, it, we, if it was all natural, right? Pretend like, could we ever get to a place where we're showing imperfection by choice? I, there is a know. movement uh, mm. now. Susan, oh, really? Both for the, yeah. Well, maybe only on Instagram since there are, you know, there are a lot of mom accounts, probably still in the minority compared to just general Instagram accounts of people trying to look perfect, right? But, you know, showing their, C-section scars, their, you know, the sagginess, the, the sometimes the linea nigra, which I don't know if any of you had it when you're pregnant. It's still, it's you know, uh, there's discoloration. Yeah. yeah. Wait, 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 wait. What's that? What is that? Is that like a? Is that by? It's like that, 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 brown that line from like the middle of your chest between like your boob, basically all the way down to your belly button. Yeah, and that's that space. cool. Yeah, yeah, it's hormonal. It's totally hormonal, and a lot of women have it, and some people have it like you know, it's very, very dark and it stays around for a long time. So there is that, I think, micro movement on Instagram. We'll see how far it goes. But I think what you guys are also, the two you're talking about is in terms of how we women take things that are, you know, on our bodies so personally, you know, fertility is as well, right? Sarah, when you were talking about your fertility test. And so I'm actually getting an HSG next month because I've also have PCOS and I have some fertility issues, we've, which we've talked about in um, other episodes. And, you know, I was really thinking about how, and I don't know how you felt when you were going through this, there's so much blame, you know, for women who are going through fertility on themselves, like there's something wrong with their bodies, right? And nothing you, it, it's very hard for somebody else to say something like your spouse or your friends. It doesn't take any of that away because somehow you feel like in this very fundamental way, your body has failed you, right? And I already have a daughter, right? We were able to, with, you know, some medication, get pregnant last time, but it's just sort of like, this hard thing because it's it's nothing that you can do. Doesn't matter how hardworking you are, how smart you are, it has nothing to do with that. And then it's like many things are totally beyond your control, right? And so I'd love to hear kind of how you handle that from an from a, an emotional perspective, thinking about your body, whether you ever felt like you know it betrayed you, and yeah, would love to hear about that. I think with many things in life, I felt that. I had to work for things. You think about most sports I played. I like, I was never naturally good at a sport. Or I think a lot about my little sister who is like just a naturally talented singer. And I was like, okay, if I wanted to be in the choir, I had to practice a lot. If, and this felt like one of those things where like, okay, if I wanted to be pregnant, I have to, I'm gonna have to work at this a lot. And so it just became like another job in some ways. And I think that's how I often tried to compartmentalize. And because I like the unicorn uterus, because there was so much mystery surrounding it, I think there was a lot of fear. And I, I do remember in the first few months after being diagnosed, I would just like wake up in the middle of the night and burst into tears and start crying. But my coping mechanism with that was like, all right, well, I'm going to go see the best fertility specialists. I'm going to go do acupuncture. I'm going to, you know, do all the research and really read up on this and basically just like conquer, conquer infertility. And I think what I, you know, learned over this long time, and I think this is actually a lot of the advice that I give to a lot of my girlfriends right now who have gone through miscarriages or infertility is like, it is literally something where you have no control. And I think even a lot of these books that have been written on, well, you know, have you started adopting a gluten-free diet or have you cut alcohol entirely out of your system? Like the irony is that my most successful egg retrieval happened when I was still drinking and 
<laughs> and the other two where I stopped drinking completely were less successful. And, and I think you're absolutely right, Kate. You take it so personally when something goes right or something goes wrong. And I, I think in some ways, like this entire infertility journey for me was this, was this acceptance that I had ultimately zero control over the outcome, even though everything was happening inside of me, you know, and that is, that is such a strange feeling. So one thing that I've been thinking about with infertility is this kind of mind body thing, right? When I was trying to get pregnant the first time, it's like, okay, I'm tracking my period. I'm like peeing on the sticks, you know, we have scheduled sex. I'm meeting my husband at a random hotel in like New Jersey somewhere so that we could like do it. That. Right. And then it was well, so like, our story is like, we tried for a year and then I made an appointment with a fertility specialist. And then we go to the appointment and then she's like, well, let's just take a look. And she's like, wow, you're actually six weeks pregnant. Right. But like I had tried for, we had tried for a year and it wasn't happening. And then mentally when I was like, okay, I'm going to need help. And I just kind of stopped paying attention. That's when it happened. I feel like I hear a lot of these anecdotal stories, like I adopted a child and then I got pregnant or, you know, or whatever. Right. And so I don't know if there's any kind of statistical validity to those observations, but I do feel like there's this kind of mind body thing, right? Like that, that is different from the way we might approach other challenges from the past. Right. So I'm curious to hear like, if you, if that was something you thought about in your whole journey. You know, interestingly, so I have heard that story a lot too. Every time we tell our story about like, okay, we went, you know, actually, you know, our surrogate got pregnant. I also got pregnant and like, here we have three and people say, well, I, you know, we hear that story all the time. I have a friend who X. And I think the only reason why I don't feel that way personally in my case is because actually my, the baby I gave birth to, I also conceived through IVF. So it wasn't one of those things where we stopped thinking about it, our surrogate got pregnant and then I got pregnant. It was actually another friend of mine from, from Harvard. She was a, a few years older than me. And I, I knew her, I would say decently well in college, but we hadn't really kept in touch. But I met someone who I, I knew was a mutual friend at a holiday party. And she said, you know, have you talked to this woman, you know, she also went through infertility. And at that point, I think I was like, I've already talked to like 50 women who've gone through infertility. So I'm not sure what like the 51st person is going to do for me, but I did. And I reached out to her and she told me about like a particular protocol that she had done because a lot of the patterns that she was seeing, which was the pattern I was seeing, which is like, I would get pregnant and that I would almost immediately miscarry. And, uh, and she said, that was the exact same thing that was happening to me. And I, I did Lovenox and Lovenox was, you know, ultimately what worked for me. And, you know, same, same thing happened the second time I tried. And so I basically like took that carnal of information, brought that back to my doctor and said, you know, what do you think of this? And she was like, "Mm, the science is really unproven here, but like, sure, if you want to, you know, try, it can't hurt. And then ultimately that's, you know, that's what led. And, and I will caveat all of this by saying like, I actually still don't know if it's the Lovenox. I still don't know. Right. Exactly. I was like, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe the fact that we were moving on to, to even a gestational carrier psychologically like lessened the burden. I still don't know. And I think that's kind of what, you know, I, I still take away, which is like, 
you, you really, you kind of, you have to surrender yourself almost to the process. And one of the best, I think books, which I, gosh, I, I just, I actually think about whether I could get someone to translate it, but when I was back in Japan, which is where my parents live, while I was going through this, I went to a bookstore and there was a, a comic book that was written by a Japanese, you know, she's, she's a comic, a cartoon artist. And she wrote a comic book about her journey going through infertility for, I think, seven plus years. And ultimately she and her husband, I think they went through like nine cycles of IVF. They ultimately couldn't conceive. And it's her story about coming to terms with not having a baby in her life. And it was actually one of the most cathartic things that I had read during that time, because I think so much of the narrative around fertility is like, don't worry, keep trying, keep going, and you'll end up with a baby. I'm like so ecstatic. I can't even tell you, but I also don't want to send the wrong message out there that like, because I tried or because I worked so hard or because I talked to someone, it resulted in three babies. Like, I think I got incredibly lucky. And also I had the money to pay for amazing care. But I think the truth is like a lot of people who go through infertility ultimately like don't end up with a baby and, you know, try to find meaning and happiness in not having children. And I think that conversation also doesn't get, that doesn't happen enough. And I think my husband and I actually, we did get to that place. I think at a certain point, because the truth is we were very happy with our life pre-kids, you know, I think, And I think that's also like some of the tension in going through infertility for those of us who like don't necessarily see ourselves becoming mom as number one goal in life is like, yeah, I'm like pretty happy with my life right now. Do I keep want to keep putting myself through like the financial, emotional and mental challenge of, of, you know, trying to have a baby. So I'm sorry, that was just, that was so, I just said so much. (laughs) I don't even know where (laughs) Spin drift talking, ladies. Yeah. Oh my God, Raspberry, am I right? <laughs> but no, I mean, you, you, you touch on so much, which is about having attachments and letting them go. You know how I've been a high achiever all my life. If I just keep on trying, it will happen. You know, like all of this stuff that is like the weight that you feel before you change your first diaper, and there's other work that happens. But then also what you're talking about is the fact that you had to advocate for yourself and your body. Mm-hmm. Like you had to go find this information. You had to get, talk to the, the sisterhood of other people who have gone through struggles and like get any tips out there and probably Google till midnight and all that of just like, how do I make this happen? But you had to advocate for yourself. Yeah, I think, and that's a lot of like, it's so funny because I think there's there's movement. Do you guys listen to Women's Hour? It's a BBC radio show. It's like, it's amazing. You, yeah. I highly recommend it. But one of the conversations they're having right now, or one of the, the podcasts that I just listened to was about endometriosis and, or a lot of undiagnosed women's illnesses. And basically the minister of um, health is saying like, women, like, you know, don't take no for an answer. You have to advocate for yourself when you're with your doctor. And the anchor of Women's Hour said, you know, like I consider myself a highly educated person. You know, I am also powerful. I, you know, I'm the host of this BBC show, but when I was suffering through endometriosis and she actually just had her uterus removed, 
I certainly did not feel like I could push back against a doctor and I could advocate for myself. And, you know, aren't we, aren't, are you kind of like joking, you know, putting that onus on, on the patient? And yet I think that is so much of how women's health is treated today, especially infertility. It's like, it's all on, I shouldn't say it's all on, but so much is on the patient to like continue to advocate, to continue to research, to continue to like find the best doctors out there. And I think, you know, I don't know if Susan, we've talked about this before, but I was just thinking like in my four years of college, like I did not like have one conversation that like, you know, fertility is a challenge for some women. And like, you may want to think about X, Y, Z, you know, whether. No, I was just thinking like, okay, how do I get plan B? You know, yeah, like exactly. Oh, because if, you know? if a boy touches me, I might get yeah. Oh I my god, I got hugged. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think like women's health education is just is I, I, I think the public health system is not there to support women. And I don't think we do enough to like educate women beyond using condoms and if you have sex, you might get pregnant. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. I was just talking to a friend whose cousin in college got diagnosed with PCOS, same as me. And of course, just like with me, her doctor at the, you know, I was told her to go on birth control. And, you know, I, when I was in high school, I didn't, I wasn't diagnosed with PCOS, but I was, I had amenorrhea, which is when your period stop. And my pediatrician just gave me birth control and knowing nothing really about my body, except through sex ed, which is don't have sex, you'll get pregnant and your life is over. I just was like happily, blissfully unaware taking, you know, birth control since I was 17. And I never knew what was really going on with my body. So when finally my husband and I needed to start trying because of another health issue I have, I was, it took me a few months and a lot of pushing advocating for myself. And then I was finally diagnosed with PCOS. Right. And it just really like pissed me off to hear from my friend that her cousin was also just being given a bandaid, like, okay, go take birth control. It'll fix all your problems. And Mm -hmm. it's just for me, it doesn't matter if the doctor is male or female. It just represents a system in which for the woman, like if you have this issue, let's not learn more about your body. Let's just fix it temporarily. And then when you need to have kids down the road, then you can deal with it and, you know, go deal with it yourself. Right. And I don't know. I just got this. I got so mad hearing that. I completely understand. And like, Kate, can you share a little bit more about your story and and where you are in the process? Yeah. So, you know, a few years ago, I had to have my giant chunk of my cervix removed because I had cervical, what do you call cervical cancer stage zero? Basically, it was like a lesion. And so then they were like, the doctor is very aggressive in the US about cervical cancer. They're like, once you finish having kids, we need to give you a partial hysterectomy, remove your uterus and your cervix. So if you want to have kids, try to have them soon. Right. So then we started and I knew maybe things were going to be off because my periods were very, very long. They're like 39 days, which if it's above 35 days, that's not very normal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was very aggressive, just like you at the outset. I was like, okay, husband, go get your sperm tested ASAP twice. And then, you know, with my OB, I was like, test me, test me. And she was very collaborative. Right. And then, and then I had friends who referred me, they were like, look, you know, even though you're early, just go talk to a fertility specialist. So I actually went to I had a consult with CCRM, but in Colorado, I know that was your, yeah, yeah, Yeah. that was your clinic in New York. And it was amazing. I mean, my doctor, Dr. Gustafson, within 15 minutes looking at my medical history was like, you have lean PCOS, which is a form of PCOS common to women who are normal or low body weight. And it's often misdiagnosed or undiagnosed until you try to conceive. And so with that, he gave me a regimen, like you have to take ovulation induction medication, this specific one, try for this number of cycles. You can't do IUI because, you know, having multiples would be a strain on your cervix. 
then go to IVF if three or four cycles don't work of the meds. Mm -hmm. So we were very lucky to conceive my daughter on the first round of meds. And I think, you know, we need to try again because now I have kidney issues because I had preeclampsia during labor, right? And so the nephrologist is like, you need to take meds for the rest of your life, but we can't put you on meds if you want to have kids. So hurry up and have kids and be done. So then we can put you on meds. Oh, and also by the way, the ob is like, we need to also remove your like cervix and uterus eventually. So, but this time around, you know, I think it's not like, I don't think I have secondary infertility per se, but the meds aren't working right the same way. And then mm. also I may have a hydrosalpinx, which is when your uh, fallopian tube is blocked by liquid or something. That's why I have to have the HSG next month. And so it's just like, it's not as like, I think it's not one big serious diagnosis, but it's just sort of like a lot of little ones. And even for someone again, who has a daughter who's like, I'm very, very lucky. We're very lucky to have a daughter. It still like stings, right? The notion that, oh my gosh, like yet again, you know, there's something in my body that I can't control. And as Susan and Jeanette know, I'm kind of a control freak. And <laughs> I, know, I know, but like, you know, it's, it's tough. And so just, there's a lot of, there's, you can control certain things. And I like you, Sarah, I think I tend to respond to like the stress of, okay, here's a plan. This is the doctor I'm going to see next step, next step. But it's like a coping mechanism, right? Oh, so people sure. think that I have all my shit together. I'm sure a lot of my friends do, but you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a total meltdown in front of Jeanette and Susan. We had to like reschedule our recording because I was just, it was like one of those days where I spent, I'm sure you know this here, five hours on the phone with like three different clinics trying to sort out all their administrative kinks, you know? And that's like, that's the grind. And, I, but I think you put it perfectly. Like if you, you just have to kind of see it, it's almost weird to say, don't take it so personally, but like, I think just kind of putting it aside, compartmentalizing, saying, this is a job. Four hours of being on the phone with an incompetent secretary is a job. And then, I don't know, it did, I, I think that would probably help if I, yeah, that's actually a really good piece of advice. Well, you know, and I, I caveat this with like, I basically, I took it on as like my second job in addition to my main job. And that was my way of like, I think not thinking about it until of course I eventually you hit a wall because it's unsustainable. But I think there's an element maybe, and you are all moms. And so you might relate to this too. Like one being almost like, I don't even want to say respite from another because (laughs) there's nothing about going through infertility. That's a respite. But like, I think, you know, you, you can channel your energy at least a little bit when, when you, when, when you, you see it as a, a challenge that needs to be solved. I think one of the things that I'm glad I cut off early was the message boards, which I, I don't know, Kate, if you, if you are looking at the message boards, but, oh, I think you're, I, I have not, I haven't touched them because I just like you, I feel like it would just. Wait, 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 wait. To people who don't do this, what is, what, what message board? God, there's just like so many. Wait, oh, I, mean, I feel like maybe Jeanette, were you going to say something? Oh, you mean like Facebook groups and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, Facebook groups, Reddit threads, you know, all oh, the like God. language. I, I am TTC, which is like trying to conceive. They have their, their whole language around it. And like, I think I took a look at a few initially when I got diagnosed with the unicornia uterus and, and ultimately I was just like, wow, this is like way too crazy. And you could, you, you see for a lot of women, it not only becomes their part-time job, it's the full-time job and the only thing they are doing day yeah. and night, day and night. I, I just like, actually, I'm, I'm saying this now and I'm wondering like why it's not a more talked about thing, but it, it, it becomes an all-consuming project for, I think a lot of women going through infertility. 
And I mean, because there's so much unknown out there and, and there's so many, actually, it's interesting also in the sense that like, there are some doctors really like pushing the boundaries. And I talk about this in my article a little bit, but they suspect a lot of autoimmune disorders Mm -hmm. might be related to infertility. Basically, if they can't like solve for the egg, they can't solve for the sperm, both seem good. So the embryo seems good. There are no genetic abnormalities. And then often they say, okay, well, then the problem might be in the uterus. Oh, maybe, but then the uterus is not the problem. Okay, then maybe there's something about essentially the atmosphere of the uterus. Someone once described it to me as like, there's the seed, there's the soil, and then there's, you know, the weather, the weather pattern surrounding it. And like, if your problem is the weather patterns, like that's, there's like, that is truly, I think the wild, wild west of infertility where there's so much unknown. And so one of the treatments that I was recommended is called IVIG, or it's basically like a, a blood transfusion. And then I, well, I'm sorry. I'm like forgetting the exact terms for it, but there, so, so my, I guess this is my long way of saying like, there, there's a whole deeper science to this. And there's some doctors, I think they're really like, I I know of three doctors in New York who specialize in this, like who are fertility specialists who specialize in it. But a lot of, I think like the more traditional mainstream fertility doctors would say like, meh, like there's probably some truth to it, but like, it's still so like, hocus pocus really because some so much of it is unproven but you can see how it's easy to go down this rabbit hole of like just trying to learn more about the science and really address your challenges if you can and I think that is like my very long way of saying like how do you make sure that you like dedicate enough of yourself to it but not so much that it ends up controlling your entire life and and brain and I think that's very much the point I found myself in before I was like, oh my gosh, I like, I'm going to go crazy. I just need to call it quits for a little bit. And I took a year off. So wait, okay. I got, I got two things I have to say, two things I have to say. The first one is you talk about wild west. Yeah. And a number of times your articles, you're like certain medicines or methods were going to be wild west. And I was just thinking how much money has been invested in like the space race and like going up into space, like how many bajillion trillion dollars has put into there versus the investment of the research of maternal health and, and securing, I mean, also like we talk about all the time it takes, we're not in the fact that surrogacy isn't really covered insurance. Right. And it's like, if you don't even have the money to do that, or if you're not middle-class upper-class to be able to do all these things, you don't even have a path for fertility. And so like, how much, how much money are we spending on the space race versus maternal health? You know, like why, why is it that women who have to have periods every day, every month of their lives from when they're an adolescent for, for years, can you count how many pads and tampons you might have needed to use to get to a point where you can actually have a kid and like continue the burden and the labor of all this? Like, I'm still confused why women have less power than men. I'm genuinely confused. Like we put on so much more work and we do so much like how, how, and why? Okay. That's what I have to say. Okay. (laughs) No, I totally agree. I'm sorry. I just had to Google this because I saw this article. So I think endometriosis, while I, I, I don't think I suffer from it. I might, I may not, I, I still don't know, but do you, do you all know someone who suffers from it? No. It's like basically like, it's from what I understand, excruciating pain 
during your period and oftentimes leading up to it and after it. And a lot of women, I think Lena Dunham has been a really outspoken advocate for it. She got a hysterectomy, you know, I think at the age of 30, 31, however old she was, because it was just too painful. Her periods were too painful. And I remember my, my Dr. Choi, my amazing doctor told me, she was like, you know, there's so little funding that goes towards endometriosis, which impacts, I think they think like 10% of women. It's a, it's a, a pretty significant number of women. And I just saw that the NIH allocated 26 million to endometriosis in 2021. Endometriosis yeah. research. It is such a small amount of money going yeah. to 26 million. I mean, 26 million is a lot of money, but like, if you think about research and hiring and lab work, I mean, that is nothing. And it's just crazy that I think that, that, you know, that like goes back to our whole conversation about our public health systems really like not serving women's health needs. Well, and you know, in the private sector, there is money going in, but not towards research, right? It's towards companies like, have you guys heard of Modern Fertility? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a, it's a company that sends you a kit for like uh, an amount much smaller than what you might pay at a fertility clinic. You can get your various fertility related hormones tested. And so, you know, I, I do support that. I, I think it's an interesting idea, but it's sort of, I mean, it's not exactly the same space as the NIH funding research. It's sort of like, you know, many millions of dollars are going towards supporting companies in the private sector that it sort of touch upon some form of women's health, but that's not necessarily going to go towards addressing why certain conditions are happening and to push forward women's health research and, you know, like fertility uh, treatments. And I think that's why CCRM is actually really interesting because they're very much a pioneer, right? I mean, you know, Sarah, I was reading about Dr. Schoolcraft, who's the founder, I actually have a consult with him next month. I mean, they try stuff that is like, if you're talking about unproven, I mean, my friend a few years ago, actually my friend's uh, sister-in-law, she's Brazilian and she flew all the way over to the U.S. to get treatment there. She was on a treatment of acai and she's like, this is hilarious. I'm Brazilian. We have acai all over Brazil and now taking <laughs> acai as part. And it was a very improvement. She's like, they didn't know if it would work, but their philosophy is like, if it doesn't hurt you, if we know that it d- doesn't hurt you, even if it has a really small chance of helping you take it. Right. But you know, you can imagine there'd be, if there were more money, there'd just be so much more money done, like re- sorry, more research done on some of these interesting protocols anyway. Yeah, I I think the other thing too is like besides money is just women in positions to bring up these issues in the first place. Because I think related to endometriosis, I was reading this article about a professor at MIT who suffers from the condition and, you know, how it really shaped her life. And she had to have like multiple surgeries to try to address it. I think she eventually had a hysterectomy. And then she now runs a lab that's studying this exclusively. But like, I mean, she was talking to OB guys, many of them male who didn't even know what a menstrual cup was. I think you can say all these statistics, like 10% of women, like some massive population suffers from this condition. But I think there's like this part of it that's very human. If it's not personal to you or someone very close to you, it just becomes not really a priority, right? And so, I mean, it's sad, but I think it's true. So I think, which is why I feel like it's very important for like, for women to be at the table. I completely agree. Yeah. It's, I, I, I read that article too, and it was in the New York times and, and I thought it was so powerful. And I think, you know, this, not to bring it back full circle, but this idea of like, 
endometriosis, like I think there was a lot of shame around it. And I, I, I even remember as a girl, like in her early teens, if like we had swim class that day and if someone like wasn't getting into the pool, the girls would be like, oh my gosh, she has her period today. (laughs) Right. Like it was, and, and so you can imagine like the kind of the shame that might, may have been associated with endometriosis. And I think for someone who is in a position of, of power, like her, this professor to come forth and talk about it. And, and I think for everyone to see, wow, like even she has endometriosis, like to, to, I think, you know, Jeanette, exactly your point to like humanize it. I think that is, to, to me, that was, I think actually so moving just that she has made the, the personal so public. And, and I think she, like, she's an amazing advocate for that. And I, I think you're totally right. I think it's like, it's not just a question of like the public health system. I think it's like, okay, how do we get more female scientists who feel this pain so personally to want to talk about it and want to research it? Because I, I think it's, it's so true. I think so much of what we do in our lives ultimately comes from the personal. And I definitely feel that with, with myself and my, in my own business and even talking about this, you know? Yeah. So if Mackenzie Scott or Melinda French Gates, if you're listening, you can invest (laughs) in these great areas. So I have a, a, a tangential question that I'm very curious about what, how all of you will respond. What we're talking about right now is there's like a lack of investment in, you know, maternal health. Very important topic. We don't know that much about our bodies. We should know more, right? And we talk about how there's less women in positions of power, you know, like for, you know, how many female CEOs are in the Fortune 500? Like not half, okay? So we, we all know that life is not that equal for women as now that we're all women in our 30s, 40s. My question to you is when you were a young girl and there was all these like women's empowerment curriculum and, and it was like, you, you can do it. Go shoot for the moon. Like it's like very positive. Would it have been more helpful to you as a young girl? If you actually knew quantitatively how unequal it was, would it have lit a fire in you to try or be and behave in a different way? Or do you think it would have scared the bejesus out of you of the world that you were entering? Like, what would you have preferred? That is a good question. I, you know, I have to say, I fall in the population of not knowing the stats at all. And I think I had kind of super, they were so feminist that they didn't even like talk about it. Like it was just kind of accepted that, and maybe this is also just Asian, (laughs) that you would work hard and that you would be successful professionally. And I also went to an all girls school in high school, which I think personally probably helped a lot. I really thrived in that environment. Wait, Um, was it religious or was it religious? It was, it was Catholic, but it was also international. So we, I think we, we attended mass like twice a year, but I mean, we had Muslim girls, we had Jewish girls, we had, you know, girls who like were of all different religions. And it was a Catholic school. school. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's Catholic school in quotes. And uh, yeah, I, you know, 
I think, I think honestly, part of me still feels that way. I'm, you know, and, and I think it's only in, in retrospect, when I look back, do I cut myself some slack when I see that, like, maybe I wonder why I haven't quite gotten to this place or, and I actually see it playing out in my life right now a lot. Like, even though I think professionally I've achieved some success, like I, I see that my male peers are, it's interesting. My male peers are now in doing a lot of deals together. So they're now investing together or they are being given some funding from a bigger hedge fund or a private equity firm or a venture capital firm to invest on their behalf. And often it's, it's a group of guys. And, you know, I, I know, I, I know nothing about the ins of it, but I, I just, I heard about a particular hedge fund where basically the people who were part of that hedge fund then go off to start their own hedge fund. And so long as you were part of that family, you will always receive funding from the original person and you get to like continue to fly on their private jet and whatnot. And I looked at that list of people and literally I didn't see a single female name on it. And so, you know, I, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think I, I, but I, I'm, I almost like, I can see it. Right. But it's almost, I can see it, but I can't touch it. And I, but I know it's there and I know it exists. And like, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I, I would like to also make investments. I have like things that I feel very passionately about. I obviously like love my job. And so I, I'm not, I don't want a career change at all, but I do see other startup CEOs like operating at this, at this, at this kind of like next tier of influence. And it yeah. sounds like you're like describing an old boys club. And it's so ironic because we all went to Harvard. Like they all gave us a Harvard badge. It's literally in our wallets and we show people and shouldn't this open up doors for you? Like, and, and, and where you've taken your company, like you don't, how do you intercept the next layer of elitism? It, it's not, it's, it's way softer. And I think that's why I was a social studies major in college, full disclosure. Me too. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's soft power. And so what that means is like, there's no application process. There's no interview for entering into any of these places. It's all through friendships. Even networking is like too formal a word. It's, these are, these are people who are friends together and move together. And it's just interesting because I, I see even my husband, my husband was also 06. And like, I think his friends are talking about investing together in things. And like, I, I unfortunately, those are not the conversations I have with my girlfriends. And I, I don't even know if it's because the financial resources are different. I think it's more just like, it could partially be area of interest. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe I can turn it back to you and say, like, are you having conversations with your girlfriends about like opportunities that you're seeing, you know, regardless of whether or not you can financially invest in it or not? So I have a lot to say about this, Sarah. I think you're totally right. My husband has a startup. I mean, he is a doctor, a neurologist originally, and you'd think he's very well educated, right? went to Northwestern, did his fellowship at UCSF. But when he entered into the startup world, it was like none of his credentials, nothing mattered. And funny thing when you were saying about how these things all come through friendships, 
I will be the first to say that some of his investors are because of me and my friendships, some of which are Harvard friendships, some of which were not, but they were 100% not like my husband going out and being like, hey, here's my resume. You want to invest in my startup? I mean, he did pitch a lot to, to VCs, but, you know, and he even made that observation now that he's in it, it is an old, it is an old boys club, right? And I'm going to say this, like the last round that he raised, it was over the friend who's my friend first. And this friend led around, it's called the friends and friends party round, I guess is the term. So basically our friend, my friend originally, got a bunch of his friends, all guys together to write little like checks of tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars each and put it, you know, in my husband's company. And then my husband also invested in like a startup of one of our other friends. So it's like, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. If one of our startups fails, it's fine. But if somebody's is, you know, gets to be successful, we'll all make money, right? And I'm just like, even though he's a part of it now, but there's a part of me that's just like, it is so hard to get in there. And then once you get in there, it's like, yeah, everything is there, right? And you're right, like with my girlfriends, we don't really, I mean, there are a couple girlfriends who invest, but I think part of it is related to something we talked about in an earlier episode, which is like, I was thinking, how does my husband have time in addition to startup? He also like, you know, he does his own investments and stuff. I'm like, it's because he has so much extra mental time. And I've been telling him, I'm like, honey, I wish I could have a hobby like research investments, but I'm so tired by the end of the day. In addition to, you know, doing some of my work, I'm only part-time now, but like work. And then there's like, not even just the work of taking care of my, the kids, but because we have babysitters and, but it's just thinking through, right? We were talking about this, the mental load, all of that. I, I really do think part of it, why women, our, our female peers aren't necessarily spending their extra time talking about investments. It's not just, we're not capable, we're not interested. It's like, literally we have kind of limited bandwidth. I think that is a reason. I really think so. Right. I, I, you, yeah. you said it perfectly. I think that's so true. And and I, I, like, it goes back to like, how do you get your partner, male or female, to like take on more of that load? It's, I think it's so, it, you, you said it so beautifully. And that is why I think it's such a sad conclusion, but like the men keep getting wealthier, right? They, I mean, your husband and his friends are making these deals together. And like, sure, many of them won't work out one of them may work out and that might be the next Instagram or, or what, what have you. Right. And, and by the way, and here we are, like when I'm texting my girlfriends, I'm like, Hey, we're going away for 4th of July. Like, do you have a, a baby Bjorn bassinet that I can borrow from you? So I'm coordinating a pickup from the Upper West side, the Upper East side <laughs> and, and trying to get them back. Like yeah. the mental load is, is real. It's not that my husband doesn't do it. He's actually, I would say like all things considered, I would say like a 50, 50 partner and then some, but it, it's it just somehow like a lot of the smaller logistics, the way it shakes out tends to shake out that way. So I don't know. I just, I, I am, I am seeing these opportunities. I just can't quite touch them, but I, I see them happening among my guy friends, both exactly my age and older and younger. And I am just pissed that I can't be a part of them yet. And I, I'm so, you know, I think I'm, I'm actively trying to see like, what is it that I can do to like exercise my influence a little more? But it's so funny, Kate, that you mentioned this. It's almost like a hobby and you're like, 
you know, how, how, how do you take on this extra hobby? Because it is, it doesn't seem like a hobby. It seems like another job, but I think a lot of the guy friends that I know, like they, they, they do it over drinks. They like text their friends about it. It's just like the conversations that they're having. I just like to add in a third factor here, right? Which Sarah, I think you're getting into, which is, I don't want to call it risk tolerance, right? And I'm interested in hearing about this from you because you're, you know, you're doing a venture back startup. And, and I think there is a lot of research that shows women take more prudent risk. Let's just put it that way, right? Than men. But I feel like in our world right now, like, especially in the startup, like investment world, it's just kind of like, just keep the party going until everything crashes, right? And then like, as long <laughs> as it's going, everybody's happy and whoever's riding high is a hero, right? But there's a part of me that just feels like, well, I don't really want to do that. I don't yeah. want to just be riding the frothy wave. I'll put my money in an index fund because, you know, Warren Buffett, I think is that, yeah. right? Like if I died and I think, and, and if I had to instruct my wife how to manage her money, I would tell her a hundred percent to put it in an index fund. <laughs> and I think I was like, there's, I, I completely agree with that. Like there's, there's something to be said about like that being the prudent investment strategy. But I will say like, it's interesting. I only had one female angel investor in my first round, which is crazy considering that I run a woman's workwear company. I thought most of my initial angel investors were going to be women. And, you know, I hate to generalize here, but I had a really hard time getting the women on board. Whereas like one of my angel investors, truly, he has made, you know, he's continued to be way more than an angel investor. He's really my mentor. He coached me through my first round of negotiations with a family office, or actually, I'm sorry, I should say with, with a PE fund, you know, short stories, it didn't happen, but he wrote me a hundred K check. And he said, Hey, would you be interested in raising more money? And I said, yes, of course. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll get back to you in 24 hours. And he had raised an additional 300,000 for me. So I raised 400,000 in 24 hours from Bob and his friends, which is exactly what we were talking about. And I do think when, and Kate, you were just kind of alluding to this too, when you make enough investments, like one of them will be successful, but in order to, I think, make those kinds of investments, you have to make multiple investments, not just one. And I think that's where like, there's no intermediate step. Like if you only invest in three, you're probably going to lose a ton of money. You, you have to like, your, your hit rate's going to be so low that you actually have to be able to allocate your cash into multiple places. And so it's really hard to be like a small angel investor. I think you, in order to have good returns, you have to like actually have a, a good amount of cash to deploy. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, I, I would say, again, I don't want to say women generally, but like people who are just like moderately wealthy, it's a really bad idea to do venture capital investments because the risk is very high, but the returns can also be very high. And I think that's another limiting factor for a lot of people. Like that's, you know, that's a reason why a lot of people can't enter into that arena of investing unless you become the bobs of the world where, you know, you're willing to take a hundred shots because you're comfortable with 99 of them losing. So, wow, that's so depressing. I'm sorry <laughs> for this to be such a depressing <laughs> podcast recording. <laughs> and we're all about like the real, real here, right? Oh, right. good. <laughs> right. And I think also trying to change that. Like, I mean, Susan, I hope I got, get to call you in 10 years and being like, hey, Susan, 
are you in for 100k like <laughs> oh you mean no well, let's do more more commas more commas <laughs> more zeros everywhere. <laughs> so wait 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 so i mean i had started this conversation with your little kid your little girl what did you want did you want the hardcore truth of how oppressed women were or actually just stay positive and 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 wait as long as possible to realize how messed up it is where I, where you I, might be oppressed I might go with the latter I don't know I think it's <laughs> kind of working out for me in the sense that I'm like mildly disappointed after the fact but I kind of grew up thinking like the sky's the limit and I I don't know I, I guess this is like this kind of not to make this too philosophical, but do you teach kids how the system is inherently broken and how the, the odds are stacked against you or how your the odds might be stacked against someone who is not white and male in order to make more room for them? And I, you're, I don't know, you're right. Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, it's not a bad thing that there's more awareness around this. Um, well, I mean, we don't even have to wait for our kids to go into a classroom. Like, the household is the classroom. Well, yeah. So my younger one is a girl. I, I think it also depends on their personality, right? I think for me, knowing that that's the case, it would have probably fired me up more and just been like, no, like that's not fair. You know, like I'm going to go get, it would have probably pushed me to go against the grain more. So I think I have to see what my daughter's personality is. But if I, if I do share that information with her, right, I don't think I would frame it as here's the reality and here's what you should expect. It's more like, See like how unjust this is. You're going to be part of the change. I don't know. Maybe that's too much of a burden to put on her, but I don't think I would never want to tell her like, this is the way the world is. And therefore, you know, your place is here. I would never, I can't imagine any of us like wanting to send that message to, you know, any daughters we may have or have in the future. I think about it a lot now that I have a girl. How do I, how do I help her? I think a lot happens in non-explicit ways by which I mean, I also, you know, I also have a daughter and she's very, she's very active. She's very assertive, very not like, you know, girly in the way that her grandparents, you know, both my husband and I, we have first generation immigrant parents who are like, girls should be like this, boys should be like that. And my mom has said, she's like, why are you, you know, don't dress her like in gender neutral clothing, make sure she knows she's a girl. Like, oh, she shouldn't, she's so active, runs around like, just like a boy, you know, as if it's very negative. Whereas my husband and I are both like, well, that's great. She is who she is, but you know, she's, she's just, she's just such a strong personality. And I think in the way that we would want to be around her, we would never want her to feel like somehow because she's a girl, she's not girly enough, or she needs to adhere to certain conventions. And I think in our family, or between me and my husband, at least, I think that's one way which we're really hoping to kind of teach her just through how we encourage her to be who she is, as opposed to, you know, adhere to some sort of artificial standard or expectations. Like, you know, I think for me, right, I think my parents would, my, my dad would have said, oh, you know, like, you're an only child, obviously work hard, whatever. But then in some of the things that my parents had me do, I think it was very gendered, right? I mean, that's a whole nother generation. So it's not like I blame them, but in their behaviors of how they raised me and what they did around the house and the different roles, like, and what I saw, it was just very obvious, right? And I think kids absorb that in, mm -hmm. in, as much as if you just tell them, hey, this is how things are, right? Like kids watch your behavior, they watch how you treat them and they learn a lot that way about the dynamics of the world. 
look, I, I hear you. There's no clear answer. It depends on the kid, blah, 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 blah. I hear you. But at the same time, I feel like if someone told this to me when I was like 11, 12, 13, I feel like I would have wasted so much less time being so boy crazy. I was so boy crazy, always crushes, like folding up notes, you know, like whatever. And, and it was like, and, and if I only had the wherewithal to know that they're going to kind of suck into like, I know you and Chris met in college and that was beautiful. And so did Jeanette first year that's great <laughs> but guys kind of like suck for a while like they just everyone is should just be really on their own self-discovery journey period and stop figure out all their issues and then date in their mid-20s mid-late 20s whatever you know like I would have gotten so many more petitions signed or something like with all those extra like a bajillion <laughs> hours not fantasizing that some boy's gonna like save me and make me complete you know, if I knew that so much was so at stake, I just would have just let it go. Just would have really let the boy crush go. Okay, maybe that's too much no, information. I want to actually, this is interesting though, but, but like that's, that's, I feel like that's like something slightly, like, <laughs> because what you're saying is like, your, your girl, kind of the odds are naturally stacked against you. What are you going to do about it? And I think, Susan, you're talking about something else. You're saying like, <sighs> oh, do we want to have the revolution? And what time are we going to schedule it at? I'll send you a calendar <laughs> invite. That's what I'm saying. Got it. I got it. You're saying, right. This is, this is what I'm No, no, no. I get it. You're saying get fired up. This is the challenge <laughs> that lies ahead. And I think, I think actually, you know, this, this is actually similar to what Jeanette was saying. Like, are you going to be part of the change? Are you going to, do you want to like fix the problem? So we're about running out of time and we, we have a couple more questions for you. And the the, the next one is, and I know you have three, so maybe you're like, whoa, but why have kids? Is it worth it? How many? I throw that in at the last point, but, but why have kids? Like, why, Sarah? Why did you want to have kids? And I mean, how many times were you disappointed? You were disappointed a lot of times and you kept coming right back to be like, actually, I still want them. Why? I guess maybe I'll start with like, I don't think, I, I think I would have been just as happy without kids. I think I just need to say that because like- You said it, you said I, it, I, you had a great life. I yeah. had a really great life. I will say my kids give me so much joy. And I like, I, I love being a mom and it has been a really happy year for me, but I would like to think that if I didn't have kids, I would have found joy and happiness in, in completely different things. And, and it's true. Like, you know, I think now, like I basically do two things. I work and I take care of my kids. And, and so the time that I spent, you know, reading or writing like that doesn't really happen anymore. And, but I think what I, what I've enjoyed about being with my babies right now is just kind of like 
getting down on all fours and kind of getting lost in time, just like looking into each other's eyes and laughing and giggling and doing silly, stupid things. And that's a really, really wonderful way to spend your time. And so I, I want to say like for anyone who doesn't have kids, I, if, when I had, did not have kids and I heard someone talk like this, I was like, okay, you go do you. (laughs) But now that I have kids, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's really fun. It's because they teach us to be in the present moment. Yeah, totally fun. Totally fun. So I, I love it. What was the next question? Oh, is it, so is it worth it? Worth it. Yes, totally, totally worth it. But I think I, again, I go back to, I couch this with like, I went through a lot of pain to have these three babies. And like, I also think it's okay for us to have a conversation about like, if, if you're going through infertility, is it worth being miserable for like a decade of your thirties for the chance to, to maybe, or maybe not have a kid? You know, I think that's a conversation that people are really scared to have, but is, is worth thinking about. Thankfully, like my journey was only three years long, but like, had it gone on for much longer, I don't know. I don't know. At some point, I think I would have said it's just not worth it. So I say that it is, you know, it, it was totally worth it for me, but that I don't, I'm not sure that's like a universal answer. And then the last one, which is how many, I mean, I would love a hundred more, but Oh my God. It's so fun. Yeah. I would totally love a hundred more, but like, I think real realistically, you know, and we have one embryo left and I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, we also have Ruggles, our 85 pound dog who I joke, but it was harder to raise Ruggles than it was to raise three babies. Or, I mean, I'm still raising them. They're only 10 months old, but you're pretty much um, done. <laughs> yeah, it's done. They, they can take care of themselves now. My, our, you know, our, and like, I just need to make sure he gets a lot of love too. He's a total handful. So I don't know this, this right now, it seems like a good setup for us. I, I think of it as having four children where our firstborn Ruggles is like, the <laughs> the neediest of them all so yeah sounds like yeah. my family our firstborn's also a dog and she's oh super needy and a diva such a diva totally she, and she like a lot of dogs do not like it when they were the first baby and then others enter the picture so depressed depression totally. is real I know I am really working through a lot of anxiety with my firstborn stuff <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So how do you guys answer this? I'm so curious. Well, we're actually going to have a whole episode on this, this season. Oh my God. Awesome. Because I just feel like it's such a big question, actually. Susan asked me this, I think before you got pregnant or like when you were pregnant, you know, and I think for me, like the honest answer then was I kind of want like a little mini me of my husband and I like running around. That's a completely honest answer, right? And I think it's so fun. But now I wonder if there's just this kind of like a deep, like even outside of our rational, like logic need for us to have babies, like our lizard brain, right? It's just, we're just wired to want it. I've been reading a lot about child psychology and just a lot of brain stuff. And, you know, you just realize like there's so much happening 
that motivates us, that's like outside of our realm of consciousness. And I think that having offspring is potentially one of them, right? And it would make total sense. And yeah, and so I, I'm really looking forward to the episode on this because yeah, it, it's an interesting topic and it obviously changes your whole life. Mm, I think we didn't think that much about why. I think it's because, you know, expediency was the word of the day. It was either like we had to try now or I couldn't afford to wait like other people to think about it. But also now that I look back, you know, my husband and I are both, we've moved around a lot. We've done a lot of different things and it's like an adventure. It really is. Like, I think sometimes if you overthink it, you know, I have some friends who are like, I don't know if I'm really ready to be a parent. Like, you know, I need to solve all of my issues and I need to be at this place, you know, financially, et cetera, et cetera. And then I tell them, I'm like, look, if you're basically financially stable and you're like reasonably like emotionally healthy and you have a reasonably good relationship with your spouse, And, you know, don't overthink it because sometimes I think that can really, you just go around in circles. And I actually wouldn't have said I wanted more kids before my daughter, but like both of you have expressed it's, I mean, it's just been so fun, not without obviously a lot of the, you know, challenging parts, but overall it's, I just didn't expect to have so much fun. I know this sounds like weird to say it's just fun, but it really is. Right. And I was, you know, the motivation for wanting at least one more is how could I not? She's so much fun. She would have so much fun with another sibling. My husband and I are both only children. And, you know, we are financially able to support another child. A lot of families don't have that luxury necessarily. And so it's just, it's like almost like, duh, why wouldn't we have another one at this point? You know? So I don't know, dude. I mean, we do the debate all the time. And like, I just, I think about climate change and I think about like a strain on resources and consumerism because Think about how many items you've ordered on Amazon. Like you're like, will they like this one or that one? Or like, I need this right now. Or I like, feel like I was fighting Amazon so well until I had kids. And then it just like, it's like the wall crumbled so fast. So <laughs> fast. Cause you need this one obscure thing for this one moment or this, oh, they really love this one. I need the exact same one again, you know? And it's just like, okay. So part of it is the consumerism and environment. And the other part of me is like, the works the work well wait I gotta tell you I was recently at a funeral on Friday and and when you see death right in front of you you really start to think about life you think about siblings you think about your own relationships to people who you're estranged with or what do you have to have to resolve what do you have to tie up before you die you know it's like that happens like a wave and I gotta say even though I'm like oh I don't know if I'm gonna have a second kid resources or time or I don't I want to really make sure I have a like a stable mental health you know I want to make sure I have room for my career and my friends my own all of me you know like I want to have that but then you're like hey when when us parents die who do they have who's who's supporting them in grieving you know and and family is not perfect it's it can be very dysfunctional and messed up but like who is there with you when that happens you know and I was like that really hit my heart in a new way and so I've just been thinking about it. I mean, we, we reached a point point where we have all this stuff, like his old clothes. And it's like, should you donate it or not? Should you hold on to it or not? If you had a second kid, will the girl wear all blue, whatever, you know? And it's just like, you think about your own mortality. You think, what do I, how, how is my sibling experience? And do I 
will I miss that? Could I, could I substitute it for a cousin experience? And I make an effort to go fly somewhere often so they have a relationship with extended family. You know, what do I need to do different in this generation for us? And yeah, just the thoughts come. Yeah, but, um, the act of the act of putting away clothes is becoming a very existential question for you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And and Marvin's just like Susan. There's find other groups. There's consignment places. There's you, there's mommy. Facebook <laughs> like you hoard. You can hoard stuff. You can get it later. We could buy it, you know. And I'm like, no, it was handed down to me. I can't let go of this extracted value that I realized from zero, you know. And it's like, whoa take it one day at a time. You know, it's a great day if he sleeps through the night and that I, mama went to go exercise and also mama had a beer after work, you know, like, are we doing basics sometime? But yeah. then I, then I start to worry. You've just listened to a confessional of model minority moms. If you loved this episode, please give us a rating, follow us on Instagram at model minority moms, and tell a friend about us. If you have a suggestion for a future episode or questions, send us an email at modelminoritymoms at gmail.com. It's like Spice Girls, like I'm Vietnam, I'm Korea, I'm Chinese. And now you're Japan. Okay. You're, you're Japan, right? No, I'm not. Susan's more amped up than usual.